Are you done? Is that actually picking that up? (laughs) They're that sensitive, yes. Oh, wow. Hello! Welcome to Opinionated. My name is Chris Kyes. I'm a filmmaker from Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm missing. Yes! I am... Lightning strike. That is my thing. Very well organized, very well planned. Well, I'm Rick Fox. I'm decidedly not missing. I'm an aspiring author, and... um, I am a demigorgon. I'm much more impressed with your actual title choice. <laughs> much more disappointed with your sound effects, not going to lie. I, I think my, I sort of owned that one a lot my, more. My Foley work might some, need a little more practice. You could definitely take a few pointers from me. I'll, I'll, I'm offering a class. Uh, Binge. <laughs> Hello. Hey, guys. Uh, I am Binge. I am... Just the guy that likes to watch movies and TV shows with these guys. And your name and is I, just binge. Yep, just, just binge. binge. Just binge. And He's known for I his really, I have a lot of trouble using elevators. They just never work quickly for me. They just take forever. I think we all do have at least one thing in common. <laughs> <laughs> and that's being opinionated. <laughs> I thought you were going to say we all really like Stranger Things. <laughs> oh, oh! I think that's safe to say that we definitely all really like Stranger Things. If you've been listening, you probably noticed that we usually do film reviews, and we're going to start branching into some other territory in the coming few months, hopefully. Uh, maybe some book stuff from Rick, and uh, also branching into the world of television with Stranger Things, which I am just completely obsessed with. I've already actually watched everything. Sorry, everyone. Uh, but, man, it is just so good, right? Right? Like, I mean, yeah. we just watched the first episode together. Yeah, we did just watch the first episode, and I have also seen the entire first season, and it is so good. So Stranger Things is actually available on Netflix, so if you have an account, you can start watching it right away in its entirety. It is directed by the Duffer Brothers, who I had not heard of previously, and they also wrote the entire series. It stars Winona Ryder, David Harbour, and Finn Wolfhard, which might be one of the greatest last names I've ever heard of on a <laughs> cast list, among others. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we just finished the first episode. Uh, what what did you guys heard about this show before going into it? Um, I I just had seen a lot of people talking about it online and on Facebook and that kind of thing. I actually have not. I'm the only one here who has not seen the entire series. I've seen the first two episodes, um, and I really liked what I saw. But I was initially going to watch it just with my wife when I could force her into you know sitting there and watching it with me. Um, but because uh, she does not care for scary things, and there is definitely a decided uh, '80s horror edge to this that she doesn't particularly care for, which is a big part of why I want to make her watch it. Um, <laughs> Do you think she also um, has she not watched any of it yet? She's watched the first two. She watched the first two with me. And did she like it? She liked it. It's just not her thing. Hmm. Interesting. One of the my takeaways is I feel like this is one of the best examples in terms of a TV show that I could say like, yeah, I have a hard time seeing how there would be nothing for someone to latch on to here. And a big part of that is that, yeah, it's got that uh, horror vibe, but it's also just so nostalgic in terms of its aesthetic. And it's also just a really great coming of age tale. I feel like, and all of the characters are just really strong mm-hmm. and interesting. It's just a straightforward drama. I feel like it's, it's got a lot and even adventure. Like there's some yeah. adventure in there too. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I, I really like this as a opening piece for the story. I you get a really strong impression of every character. It you get a, a definite sense of what's going on in the world. You know, prior to this, you get a good sense of the the relationships going on between everyone. I think it's I think it's really solid for an introduction. I really I don't want to uh, uh, peak too early here, but the the first like five or ten minutes of the first episode are probably probably my favorite like compilation of scenes in the whole are, series are you talking about like the opening and then the scene everything up until... from the elevator to the D scene to the light bulb cutting out like mm. and the title sequence i think all of that is just so masterful the the elevator scene you know it it's it's probably the weaker of the three and just that it's a little predictable it's like oh yeah that's a red shirt for sure right yeah, no, the, yeah exactly. the moment that scene starts you know that guy is super dead super dead yep. and you can even probably pick out the exact way in which he's going to die yep but even just the aesthetic and the sound design in that scene it's mm-hmm. enough to sort of get over the tropey nature of it and in a way i would say that like this series is sort of defined by how it 
navigates itself around 80s tropes because it's very self-aware is not the right word because that implies that there's some sort of meta like narrative going on and that's not necessarily the case but it's a show that seems to be aware yeah we know that this is normally the character arc that would exist for this type of situation and this type of setup and half the time that trope resolving in the tropey way is the most satisfying way it could be resolved with Mm -hmm. these particular characters and sometimes it subverts them and i think that we'll get into that in later episodes and i think that's really interesting but there's definitely nothing wrong with playing a trope the way it's intended there's really not like it may be that your audience is going to uh, see it coming but the thing is if you do it well that isn't going to matter as much what matters is the uh, quality of the execution of a trope whether you're going to subvert it or play it straight yeah i completely agree and i think this show being clearly like as a directive an homage to you know the more classical like 80s 70s style of cinema when blockbusters were first becoming a thing like this series seems to really try to pin down the elements that made those narratives work really really well and there's just so many just uh, visual similarities to films like the goonies et close encounters that are really hard to look at and be like Eh, yeah but that's probably just a good looking you know coincidence and it's when you see the footage side by side it's really difficult it's, to yeah, keep making the argument it's like wow that is <laughs> that's intentional yeah at this absolutely point. yeah do you mean anything beyond just the 80s-ness of this because this is incredibly 80s well you can look at there's actually a, a vimeo link that's going viral of shots inspired in stranger things and on the left side it's just scenes from Stranger Things. And so I don't advise so you watching talking... this until you finish it because it'll spoil it. Right. But there are, uh, it'll show like a scene. And for example, at the end of the, this first episode that we just watched, when they find the girl in the woods, there is a, like almost like, it looks like it's almost plagiarized from a scene in E.T. when the uh, our protagonist first finds E.T. in the woods, the way his flashlight's like hovering over him and like the way it cuts, it I think it's also even like paced the same way. Hmm. Like it's cut, cut, cut. What would you say is the difference between um, something that would be just straight plagiarized and something that is homage? Because I feel like that's the difference here. Hmm. That is a really good question. And it's hard to answer because (laughs) usually things that do it poorly are also forgettable to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually funny. Part of the reason I bring that up is because you saying that reminded me of one of my favorite Penny Arcade comics. And it was talking about a game that was very clearly inspired and modeled off of Legend of Zelda and one of the characters you oh, it's know, probably Darksiders the, isn't it, it? it is exactly that uh, he, he asks you know uh, one of the characters asks the other you know what's what's the difference between plagiarism and and uh, and uh, what's and the homage. word homage. and homage yeah and the other guy just goes whether or not I like it yep. <laughs> and that's basically it like yep. this works and I like it therefore it is homage and not plagiarism I mean at the end of the day you know saying whether or not you like it is a pretty good way of saying oh well is it good or not but also you can look at the huge and massive and rapid following that this show got with almost no advertising previously. I had no idea it existed until it was already on the internet. And I don't think I knew of anyone who knew it existed until it was already on Netflix. Yeah, Um, I I think I might have seen something like an ad or something come out for like on Netflix just because I watched that much Netflix about it uh, coming soon or something like that. But I like I didn't see anything out on the web or on any like any sort of extra advertising other than possibly through Netflix. Like yeah. this I, came out of left I, field. I feel like I had heard about it somehow, but I may just be associating that with um, the main character, uh, Will. No, not Will. Mike? Mike, Mike is Mike okay. is our protagonist. Will is, is the one who goes missing. Mike is the one uh, is a character like the, the actor himself. Uh, he is actually going to be in the um, uh, it remake that's ha- coming out soon, which and is very interesting. It is. I and from the cast photo that I saw of that I I liked it a lot. It's because clearly Stephen King is a big influence on this. Well, like he would just have to be if it's something as eighties as this is and horror related. Apparently, I think I read this on uh, like maybe a slash film article. The Duffer Brothers were originally courted to. Do direct the Stephen King remake and for some reason or another it didn't happen uh and they were not happy about it uh and they made this as sort of a hey we told you we could have done it right look look at us just completely own this and uh you know that's sort of it sounds so rumory that I'm I was skeptical to even bring it up but the even just the fact that Stephen King 
apparently loves this show. Yeah, I, actually, <laughs> I, think so, I, I follow him on Twitter, and I saw it when he tweeted about this show and really liked it. So that that was cool to see. Yeah, so um, I, I found that really interesting. I know you're a big fan of it and Stephen mm-hmm. King, so I'm glad that you're able to put in your thoughts towards that end as well and point yeah. out what I would not know about you know the characters and the stuff style of storytelling yeah. that might be the, relevant here this this i i like the the stephen kingy elements of this that i'm i'm seeing play out here it's it's a very well done thing i think and to to kind of go back to what i was saying a second ago about homage to say that a little more seriously i think that the difference between um something that is just pulling elements out of other stories and you know putting them on screen for you to see that's what that's what plagiarism would be to me what this does differently is it takes elements of those stories and does them in a way that is its own thing, but the execution of shots might be might be similar to to what worked in those other movies. But the actual story of what's going on here is something that's different. That's my personal take on what the difference between the two would be. It's a really good blend of a lot of stuff that has worked, and it seems to always be committed to at its core, like telling the most interesting story that these characters could line up against. I throughout the whole show, I. I, I never remembered seeing anyone act in a way that I'm like, that's a really stupid thing to do, except for maybe like a very small, forgivable number of times. Everyone seems to respond, even just on an emotional, precisely how I feel like someone would in the natural world. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's really telling because, you know, there's a lot of reasons for characters to be overwhelmingly emotional. I mean, Winona Ryder's character alone, like she... Uh, in in a traditional you know more, maybe more forgettable story she'd be the kind of person who might break down immediately once they realize that Will's missing but she's you know for the most first half of this episode staying calm she's a little frantic but it's cuz she cares about her son she's not weeping yanking her hair out she's just stressed that's the I- only emotion i get from her she's really stressed that she doesn't know where he is and just just a sense of worry not overwhelmed distraught and we get there in an appropriate and well-timed paced way yeah and i think also the- i think she also is strong like she's this strong uh base foundation for her elder son who in the jonathan. middle of yeah jonathan who in the middle of the episode like actually does have a breakdown saying like, you know, if I was there, you know, this might not have happened if I wasn't at work. She's like, like she actually is like the calming force. I like that. That that is for her son. I like that. That is also reversed later in the episode and he is kind of there for her as well. Mm -hmm. What I also really like is I think that the, uh, the quick flashback that we see to, um, will in his fort and her coming to see him also helps that a lot because we see them in a different light in that point. And then to have it so quickly turned the way that they do is a really good touch. I think that works extremely well. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, that's sort of how you experience memories, you know, like you, you, you're looking for someone who's missing. You stumble across somewhere they might've been last. You might remember for a split second, the last time you were there with them. How many times have you gone looking for people that are missing, Chris? Well, I mean, (laughs) mean, how many times were you there the last time that they were seeing Chris? Uh, I don't, I don't know how to follow this up. (laughs) Where are the bodies, Chris? Where are the bodies? I am the monster, actually. That's that's what's really happening here. Oh, I thought I was the demi. No, nope. oh, you are, man. Everything. You're both. I'm. I'm. I'm eleven. That's what it is. <laughs> so uh, anyway. Anyway, um, yeah. I mean, I think that from. I think you bring up an interesting point, Rick, where how you're you're having this these callbacks and something I think the show actually does really well, episode by episode, is it has these call forwards. It foreshadows events that are going to happen, and I love how just the fact that the demogorgon in game gets will. And then the next thing that happens is a monster actually, actually gets, gets Will. That yeah. was awesome. And that, that's super interesting. And it's also provides a little bit of emotional subtext by him telling the truth to Mike. You know, it mm-hmm. it, it gives it that could, kid a character instantly. Like, yes. you, you instantly understand who he is. It could have come across as is. cheesy, you know. It could have been like this, oh, he's so innocent. But it kind of works. Like, it just, it, we, we, we've hung out with him for a few minutes watching him play D&D. He seems like a shy, timid kid in just the way he's even playing D&D. He's not speaking up very much. Everyone's having to shout at him to tell him what to do. It's sort of, it's a viable trait that I get from him in this very limited interaction. And it does actually make him sort of pitiable that he's in this horrifying situation. 
but it's also played off by the fact that he totally goes for the gun. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, <laughs> exactly. I yeah. like that a lot. I also I, I like that it's not that he's just innocent because that's a very bland characteristic to give a character, especially one that you're going to do. But what he actually is is honest, and that's something that's really admirable in the moment. Like you, that kid clearly had an opportunity to do something that would be for his own gain, and it's like as someone who has played a lot of D and D, it is at times very easy to think about fudging the role that you got or that kind of thing. Um, and so I like that it gives him a characteristic that is admirable, something we can get behind right from the beginning. I think that's much better than innocence as a as a childish characteristic. Yeah, that's that's and a good way of putting it. I, I also like to um, seeing like the reaction of the two friends that are playing alongside him is that Dustin, he's like, oh, you should use your protection spell, like taking a more defensive approach mm-hmm. and seeing how both, of, and then um, what's his other friend's name? Oh, Lucas. Lucas, yes, 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 yes. Lucas. And he's like, oh no, you should use fireball and like taking on like a more attacking stance and just seeing how the both of them throughout the entire season and like you can see them kind of almost like staying in those same roles and i just like how That's this true. very subtle at the beginning of the season where they have that moment and then like i guess you can see it a little bit now and then like you might want to be the... careful because we yeah. are talking to someone who might have a lot to look forward to it's true yep <laughs> i but i think but you're right i agree I, mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting point i hadn't thought of before i think even in the parts that i have seen i i kind of got that impression as well that that dustin is a much more laid back and and defensive character he's well, the la- priest. not laid back yeah um <laughs> and the other guy is much more forceful i really he's the like warrior i yep. really like when um when mike convinces uh is it it's lucas right mike convinces lucas to uh go after their friend because he was selfless and you know you know went for the fireball instead of the protection spell and i like how instantly like he goes oh yeah he did do that all right i'm in like and i love that we're just still talking about this stupid D game it really <laughs> is like and, and that's why like i often in screenwriting when i'm writing scripts with people or when i'm doctoring scripts with people you know i, I like to encourage things like that D game because it may not seem like it's relevant to the story, quote, quote. A lot of people bring that up, that it should, it's fat that should be trimmed. But it does so much to flesh out your characters. Yeah, it's it's not something that directly gets us to the Demogorgon and solving the mystery of the Demogorgon. But it does help us get more connected to the characters. And it makes the story feel so much more larger than life if it's something that matters. If every moment matters. And the game mattered to these friends because... It reveals like to themselves more about their like their relationship to each other. You know, he was able Dustin was able to use that to say, like you said, like this guy was selfless and he sacrificed himself to help the party. Why aren't we doing the same? That's such a great bookend Definitely. to this episode. Yeah, I, I think uh, that that's a what you're what you're calling. You know. Um, you talk about how a lot of movies these days, they're just going to go straight to the action. Each scene is going to you know, lead directly into the action. There's no fat on anything. But that's very much not an 80s aesthetic thing. Also, that's what makes things delicious. Uh, it, it 100% horrible, is. Like... Like, it really is. But I mean, that's the thing, is that establishing character moments like this where you can glom onto a character and go, okay, I know who you are. I know what you're about later when they continue to have those um, those traits or they subvert those traits or work around those traits. It builds a solid character in a way that if you're just rushing from plot point to plot point, you start to feel like they're just cardboard cutouts instead of people. Mm. And I think that's a big part of why this works and why it helps and why those things are not actually fat in that sense. They are actually what gives it the taste. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I also see like with the te- uh, Sheriff Hooper, or Hop- Hopper, Hopper, Sheriff Hopper. Hopper. Like at the beginning, when we first are introduced to him, he's you know the fat slob and mm-hmm. you know drinking beer and smoking before he even like like while he's brushing his teeth, and he's kind of like the goofy cop. And by the end of the episode, like you see him like knuckle down and like break one of those tropes about having the goofy cop. And yeah, then he knuckles down at, by the end of the episode and becomes a much more like okay. Like I'm a hardworking cop. We're gonna get like we're gonna find this kid. I really whereas, like. Yo, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Whereas like at the beginning, he's just like, eh, eh. He's fine. He's just out, you know, doing what boys do. I really like that specifically because it's a very it's another good way to to build a character. If you give us someone who we initially don't like, but then give us a very solid reason to be on his side and to go, oh wait, he's not a jerk. He's not a terrible person. It's sort of the Darth Vader effect of you're suddenly very excited to be behind this person that you were once afraid of or disliked or whatever. You know, I, I like that a lot. I kind of um, liked him right away. 
Really? Yeah. I, sort I, of, I, I mean, thought he was a, a disgusting slob. slob. Yeah, but why is that a reason not to like somebody? I, I know a lot of disgusting <laughs> slobs. I, I, when it comes to characters for me, like I sort of read it immediately. I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be the grungy, lame cop. But pretty much once he started interacting with people, I was like, I felt like he was very charismatic on screen. And I just felt like he was really fun to watch, like work himself through these situations. From that one interaction of how he's just... He's manipulating the cards that his deputies are using to play games. And the, the I guess she's the secretary at mm-hmm. the police station is telling mm-hmm. him about the stuff. And he's like, one, Mondays are for coffee and contemplation. contemplation. That yep. sounds like one of those boards that like every girl buys at Target to decorate <laughs> their, their first house after college with. It's like, mm, first coffee. That seems like something that would be written on them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. It's funny hearing it come from him. And I found, I just, I just think he's a very charming, funny, but slobbish character. And those two extremes, I feel like, work really well. I think that a big part of why it works really well is because throughout the episode, you're slowly seeing him move from one side of that to the other side. It's not an instant, there's a specific moment where he just switches into cop mode. It's a very like, you know, he's very reluctant at first, slightly less reluctant, then he finally gets to the the shed and is freaked out there, and then he's 100% in cop mode. And I like that it's that gradual shift instead of just, oh, okay, there's something really going on now, I'm super cop. Like, I like, I think that's a really good way of, of establishing that. It does really work well for the reason you pointed out as well, Binge, because he does sort of at first, just from his living quarters, come across mm-hmm. as like, okay, this is going to be the cop who doesn't care, and he's probably going to be a roadblock to the story. And at first, yeah. it does sort of seem like he's going to go that way. But like you said, Rick, we slowly like build up to who he's going to actually mm-hmm. be. And I think that's just so important with and relevant to this every character in this show. They're all slowly building to who they should be. And that prevents them from being tropes, even though on paper they might still satisfy those tropes mm-hmm. in a lot of ways as well. I didn't really, uh, the first time I watched the episode, I didn't catch this or consciously catch this, but I think I figured out what, for me at least, um, sold me on this character as well as it did. And it's that in the one of the first things you see when you look at his um, his his uh, home is you see a uh, hand-drawn-by-a-child picture of a little girl, and I think it's just a dad, but I don't know if it's the mom and dad or not. But that's so clearly at odds with the existence he's living that it instantly sets you up for who he is and the revelations that happen later in the episode. And I really like that kind of subtle detail where you're not, like, it's not just shoved in your face. It's not like him happy, well-groomed with his daughter in a picture, and then we zoom out to that kind of thing. I, I like how easy that touch is there. There's a lot of attention to detail in the set design, and it reminds me a lot of uh, another show from the 80s, which was Twin Peaks, which for... It's so hard to like pitch this show to people who have not been exposed to it at all. Maybe they're not on social media, so they aren't aware of the huge hype train that the show is behind. Because the only way I can describe it as a whole is this show is as, as if Steven Spielberg and David Lynch, or at least the TV version of David Lynch, had some sort of child that was a TV show. Because on the one hand, you have the kids who are going through this very Spielbergian story arc where they're mm-hmm. slowly going on this adventure and discovering this terrifying but almost magical like element to their world they've never known existed before but you also have the adults who are going through these really complicated you know uh very real and close to home issues that are also tied to this dark underworld and while the kids are going on this sort of adventure trying to be more like adults the adults in a lot of ways are becoming more like kids they're becoming more grounded by their emotions and their backgrounds and i just think that's such an interesting dynamic that really just grounds the show and also makes it completely unique and separate from both of those ideas it's it's you know it's something that feels very familiar but also something we've never seen before and that's a big reason behind why i like it so much it's almost like there's two separate like well there is really two separate stories but they all have the they're the same story it's just from you see one from the kids perspective like you were saying and then one from the adults perspective they're all trying to get to the same goal but you get to see like the like you said like the kids and their adventure and the adults trying to solve the mystery and i like you said like i really like seeing like how the, that's handled by each group is like the kids 
it's all about their adventure. It's the way that I would have divided it is that there is very clearly a supernatural story going on and a very normal, ordinary story going on. The the family drama, the interpersonal character relationships, that's all very normal, that's all very relatable, and it's all very well done. But also the supernatural mystery aspect of that is also there and also very well done. And I think that the, the interaction between the way the kids handle that and the way that the adults are handling what's going on is very interesting. There's the way that the, those two worlds are portrayed. There's another director I'd like to bring into the fold, but I'm worried it would spoil something for you, Rick, if I oh, let no. out the bag too early. I can go out, I, I can go outside for a minute. Oh, no. No, mm-hmm. we'll get to it. Okay. We'll get to it. <laughs> but the teenagers, I think, also have a unique mix of both of those worlds in this story. And mm-hmm. we're just starting to get basically an intro into that world because all we've really gotten exposure to is Mike and Nancy. And yep. Nancy? Is her name Nancy? It's her, Nancy. Nancy. Was it, I don't think it was Mike, though, was it? Yeah, it's Mike. It's definitely Mike. Uh, Mike's right? the main the kid. The boyfriend is Steve. Oh, you're right. Yeah, it's she's not, not Mike ma- at all. It's, she's not making out with her little brother. It's definitely not Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it's Steve. Uh, Nancy and Steve. What do we think of Nancy and Steve? I, uh, I like Nancy all right, but I don't like Steve at all. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that he actually ended up just studying with her. Like, he definitely made a move, but then he legitimately yes. apologized it was kind of a cutesy patsy way right but you know they legitimately moved on from that and he's still hanging out because right. traditionally what i would have expected is she blows up he leaves and that's the setup for her their story right and that's not necessarily what happens uh i i could have also bought you know he actually does get in her pants and they're just a couple right and it, mm-hmm. but it's it's already more interesting than that in a strange way by almost avoiding conflict like that's such an easy way to provide a really strong like or maybe not strong is not the right word but a really hearty sense of conflict but it's so played out that i'm really glad that didn't happen this early on what it's doing is establishing character and instead of just going for the the cardboard cutout of a character that we're used to and that's such an easy thing to do. So it makes sense that it would uh, grab you more when it goes in a direction that's unusual, even if that direction is not as strong of a conflict or as, as powerful a conflict. Um, I got to be honest. I really, the more I watch it, the more I think that the reason I don't like Steve is an instant reaction of middle school Rick that's still inside me to any guy that is good with girls. It's just <laughs> instantaneous He's got hatred. Game, he does. He's, He's like, he does. That, um, why do you think I want it to be nice and quiet? When I first said that, I was like, oh, that was a good line, bro. Yeah, that was yeah, very exactly. well placed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. like, you're an idiot. Like you can tell, she really's into him. Mm-hmm. And uh, this early on, it's so like, oh, this is such a terrible idea for Nancy. But <laughs> yeah. at the same time, I'm like, well, he does seem really charming. So who knows? <laughs> Let's right. see what happens. There are there at this point, there are a lot of directions that their relationship could go. Or at least I'll say that as someone who has not seen what will go come on come further in the in the in the show. Um, I could see this going in a lot of different directions and some of them are very bad and some of them are very good. And I don't mean that necessarily in a quality sense. Um, it's a very open, uh, area ahead of these two. And I think that's a big part of what makes it work is that they've established these two characters. They've established a certain amount of conflict between them, but it's something that is also drawing them together at the same time. And that in itself is a subtly interesting thing instead of a big bombastically interesting thing like we're used to. I think that the last thing we have to bring up is Eleven. What do we think of Eleven? I like her a lot, although both Robin and I were very confused the first time we watched this because we argued a lot about, one, whether or not Eleven was a girl, and two, whether or not Eleven was the kid that had disappeared with his head shaved. Eleven is a girl. Yes, <laughs> Eleven is not uh, is we, not Will. We did we did get to that we did get to that agreement eventually. It took a little while, but we we did get there. Yeah, I um, like her a lot though. I think she, that uh, you know, having seen also episode two as well, where she gets a little more screen time. But I won't mention much about that until we get to that at part of the the podcast. But um, I think that she is playing the part very well. It, it would be really easy to screw up something as. Uh, in a lot of ways it's as subdued as a character that doesn't speak as much as that but um she's just she's really nailing it i think at this point i think when i first when they first said but where's the girl she couldn't have gone far my first thought when i first watched this episode was okay i'm getting a little nervous because we are adding so many subplots and there's only eight episodes and they're all only about 45 there's There's only only eight eight episodes episodes. you've seen 20 percent of the series if you've watched the first two episodes that's that's 25 percent you've seen 25 (laughs) percent. yay math (laughs) 
Uh, awesome. <laughs> but um, but yeah. Uh, so that was my first reaction to Eleven. Uh, but when this episode ends, you know, I've already gotten completely on board just from the moment of her turning the fan off with her brain powers. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I am back on board. I, I think, had a telekinetic kid into the mix and I am at least interested. I think I knew she was telekinetic from the moment I saw her, partly just because of her look. That's a very standard, you know, um, mm-hmm. trope of the kid that's been experimented on and has the shaved head look. But I think it also was influenced by having seen the poster or she I don't is even know if definitely it's a poster. Darth Vadering or Akiraing yeah, in that poster. There's there's a lot of Akira <laughs> going on. <laughs> I would really like it if at some point some uh, she yells some other character's name and then that other character yells 11. That's that's just a thing that always in my mind needs to happen in every psychic on other person conflict. Maybe just me though. Uh, so yeah, any final thoughts before we move on to episode two? Well, I mean, I know uh, how you said about like, oh no, another subplot. Like what's going on with the girl and the suits? Um, I think they did a really good job of kind of tying uh, both the the young, all the young kids together at the end of the episode, they bring her into that. So it basically combines a couple of plots together. And I think they do a really good job um, of like trying to pull stuff together. So your mind may be like there may be four or five different subplots throughout the entire show, but they keep them all contained in in one or two main plots. And I really do like how they do that. The character web also is just very well Mm -hmm. woven. Yes. And I think that the reason why Eleven stands out is because after this episode, she's sort of the fly floating around the web. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like you're not super clear how she's going to mesh in in everything. And but that's another reason why the very last shot of just the kids looking at her in the rainy forest works so well is because it's sort of like a light bulb moment. It's like, oh, She's going, she's not only probably already mixed it up in all this, but she's now going to be mixed up in all of it on a personal level with our main protagonists and their kids dealing with someone who has actual superpowers and their kids who (laughs) have already talked about how cool it would be to have Have superpowers. superpowers. Yeah. (laughs) So it just works on a lot of levels. And once I saw that, I was like, oh, I'm so glad this isn't on broadcast television because I am watching the next episode immediately. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of which, are we ready to go ahead and go on episode two? Yeah, let's do it. All right. We'll take a quick break and we'll talk to you all in a moment. The Demogorgon! Will, your action! I don't know! Fireball him! They have to roll a 13 or higher! Too risky. Cast protection. Fireball him! Cast protection! The Demogorgon is tired of your silly human bickering! It stops towards you! Boom! Fireball him! Will, stop! Boom! Cast protection! It was an anger! And we are back. We just watched episode two of Stranger Things. What are y'all's first thoughts after our second venture into this small Indiana town? Not, not, not a very. <laughs> <laughs> kind of lost you, I guess. No, no longer it's in the show. Yeah, no, I'm, go- I'm actually going to be disinterested. I'm going home right now. <laughs> okay, well, that's fine. Yeah, it's all good. Well, it's it all seems good. like with all the storylines, it kind of picks up. And um, for like 11 and uh, the actual mystery with uh, Will and his mom, like it seems like all those stories kind of pick up and it like kind of makes the story a little bit more like um, intensive. It starts to intensify, I guess, a little bit to me, but then it kind of like backs off when it does the whole high school drama thing and it kind of brings it down a little bit until like the end of the episode. Down in a bad way for you, or just down in a it gets mellow. Mellow, like, not yeah. not down as in like they did poorly at this. It's just like the first episode they kind of leave it on like a really high point, and they they kind of come into that as well in this one, and then they kind of just like bring it down a little bit towards the end, and then they try to spike it up. This so episode, it, this episode is mostly very human. It's very yes. uh, dealing with the natural side as opposed to the supernatural side. Like I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. um, the supernatural has caused the effects, but they're having to deal with them in a completely normal way for the most part throughout this episode. One of the reasons why I've pushed back previously on considering Steve, like the worst is because I feel like once we get introduced to Lonnie and Steve's friends, 
They're yeah. like, oh yeah, that that's actually the worst. Like they are the worst people. His friends and Lonnie are just like the and Lonnie's girlfriend are just the worst human yeah. beings. They are they are the tropes <laughs> in that in that little story. They t- those two are like Oh, these are the jerks from that '80s movie where the jocks pick on all the nerds. Like those two are exactly those kinds of people. And Lonnie is the stereotypical stepdad who doesn't actually care about his kids except for his own hubris. You know, (laughs) feeling like he has to be a good dad so he can call himself a good dad, but he really doesn't care. He doesn't go out of his way to see his kids. He thinks his kids should be closer to him. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that that's one of those things. I still, I was like, okay. When you juxtapose these different characters, some of the other characters in the first episode suddenly don't seem a little more complex because these are the uh, cliche. Yeah, these are the like you know cliche baddies, I suppose. Mm -hmm. They're not antagonists, but they're just bad people. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) At least that's our first impression in this second episode. I still Uh, hate Steve. Oh, he's not that <laughs> yeah. bad. I mean, he's, no, he's not. He's really not that bad. And I, again, I think it is entirely for personal reasons that I hate this character. <laughs> he's at this point very much a stereotypical like party high school popular kid. Well, I mean, he's 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 a very charming kid, and it's clear that you know he and this girl are having a a uh, relationship of that kind, and it's working out. And again, like that's that's a thing that I I tend to. Um, associate more with the nerdy characters that aren't, aren't successful for that and i think because uh a lot of times in these kinds of show, or in in tv shows like the guy that's really successful with a girl right off the bat he's always the bad guy and i think i've been to some degree trained to think of him that way but even now i can see um parts of his character that are not leaning that way so i think uh as the show progresses there's a solid chance that i will like him by the end but Again, my knee-jerk reaction to, to this is to dislike him. And, I mean, a part of that is his friends. If he has friends like that, how am I to think that he is not like his friends? A fool usually walks with fools. Exactly. Yeah. But it's possible that he is actually, you know, the, the diamond in the rough, to use a different... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what about freaking... I, we're kind of going out of order. We're at the end of the episode, but... Jonathan's stalker tendencies just really off-putting. Uh, I'm not actually that so... creeped out by it, honestly. Oh, I'm so creeped out. It's voyeurism. I, yeah, it, what it I, is. It's, it's really, I think it's really creepy just because of like the way they, I guess, portray him a little bit um, at the beginning of the episode where it's like he's shown as the actual outcast mm. um, whenever like he's put, putting up the posters or whatever and all the other kids other than Nancy are like, oh, he's weird weird and he's like being portrayed as the outcast and then he actually later on in the episode is like doing something really weird and creepy and it's right i mean the thing is like if i think i would be a lot more creeped out by him if he had somehow like known about this and had gone out there intentionally for that um i'm I'm much less certainly helps i'm much less creeped out by his you know the the way that he got drawn there just stumbles Um, upon it well he got drawn there because he heard cries for help exactly and and he ran towards that and that's admirable um, the thing for me is just that again, like it's sort of the opposite of how I feel about Steve. It's I'm I'm sort of been trained to think, oh, okay, the lonely, awkward nerd guy, weird guy. He's he's going to be the good guy, right? And that may be the case, and that may not be the case. I don't know what's going forward. But at this point, I can see why someone would be creeped out by him a lot. But personally, I'm not. I think that knowing where it goes, I I still find it creepy revisiting it. Hmm. Like I'm super just like I don't really get why you're doing this it's really weird it's like when he's taking pictures of just them by the pool it's fine but like well even then it's a little weird it's (laughs) because he's not supposed to be there yeah but uh taking pictures of her when she's in the window and when you we're getting into almost like future episodes when you but i i don't (laughs) want to give too much away but uh it's it's just really odd to me that was not something i expected jonathan to do having been exposed to like what he has done previously. Cause he's very much played straight in almost every other scene. Like he's helping take care of his mom. He's helping, you know, look for his little brother. He clearly really cares about his little brother. Um, in the yes. flashback scene that we get in this one, he like the flashback between him and his brother. Um, very is really touching. Good. I, I yes. like that a lot. It's, it's got a lot of heart to it and it, it gives a lot of heart to his character. And again, that may be a big part of why I'm still on his side at this point. Oh, I still totally like Jonathan. To yeah. be perfectly clear. But even revisiting it, I found 
the motivations for him being there and taking the well not for him being there but for him taking pictures while he's there to be a little odd i think they're going for sort of like a basket case member of the breakfast club ish vibe where he's like oh he's Mm -hmm. so artsy and he's so into observing people that he's taking pictures i'm just like "Eh, i don't really buy that from anything i've seen from from him previously seems to be a very honorable kid seems to be a bit of a social outcast but it's it's a little it's a little bit of a tough pill for me to swallow uh having said that you know the scene you brought up earlier i feel like is probably kind of the episode's centerpiece actually because leading into that and where that ends up going later i feel like are very narratively significant just really the song choice of should i stay or should i go now by the clash is really cool particularly in the climax when anona Ryder's character is trying to decide whether or not to stay at the house or not stay in the house yeah that Mm -hmm. was really good yeah i I sort of missed this the first time uh where i watched it and i was like why is she going back in there but you definitely get a distinct feeling that she thinks will is somehow really close by actually like physically close to the house Hmm. and you get her sense of that when she's looking at the light bulb and she whispers will's name like i don't even know if it's audible but you can see her mouth go like and that's when the light bulb, right before it flickers and phases out. And in then case you didn't the, see the podcast, since we're not radio recording, he did go, he did mouth will into the <laughs> into the <laughs> microphone there. <laughs> um, and that's right before the Nightmare on Elm Street Easter eggish moment when it pops <laughs> mm-hmm. through the wall. Um, I really did enjoy that. Just that like was, just the stretchy oh, it's wall. Super, I really like, like that. Unexpected mm-hmm. and very. It's it's not like a jump scare, you know. And no, this, this series doesn't have a lot of those in its horror elements. It's usually there are some, but it's usually sort of that lingering dread, like you know something's coming already mm-hmm. before it happens, and that's what makes it really effective. I think. I really like what I've seen of the creatures so far, um, other than that very quick flash at the very end, because everything that we've seen so far gives it a somewhat human appearance. Like you could mistake this at a distance for human, but then there's definitely things about it. Yeah. There's definitely things about it that are distinctly inhuman and very creepy. And I think that's a good touch to give it that little bit of uncanny Valley to go along with the, the scariness of it. In a lot of ways, I think that's scarier than the, like, you know, if it was like an octopus, you know, squid octopus floating around with the giant eyeball or something like, I think this is a lot more effective. Yeah. Especially since there's definitely a, uh, since that I get just because of 11 that there's some kind of human testing going on with these people and that maybe that something has created this creature or whatever it is out of a person. That's entirely a possibility to me at this point. It opens a lot of questions. And I think that's one of the things that keeps the show driving forward very well is that there's a lot of possibilities and that mystery that's it's almost like a sense of wonder and that's a tie-in to close encounters that i think the show does really well close encounters is at its heart i think um well i would say on paper close close encounters is kind of like a horror movie in a lot of ways uh it's very scary throughout 90 percent of it like you are fearful for your characters they're in dangerous situations and they are fearful for their own lives because of that sense of otherness they're experiencing with the aliens that are visiting earth but at the same time there is a very palpable sense of wonder that plays off in a very heavy-handed way during the famous climax at the end uh in an effective way also but this is sort of like that but the wonder really plays into the horror Mm -hmm. in particular really effectively in this show and it it feels like a callback to that film especially with all the spielbergian filmmaker tendencies yeah and i i do like how at least for the first two episodes they kind of treat the monster like it's it's kind of scary because you don't know what it is like you've gotten like glimpses here and there and i really do like that um like how they kind of like hide the monsters. Like you're scared, but you don't know of what. And I think I like that a lot more in like my movies and TV shows in the horror genres. Like this, I want to be like, I want there to be suspense. I don't want to be scared of something that looks scary. I like the suspense of not knowing what it is more so than just, oh, that looks like a scary thing, and so I should be scared. Right. It's a, it's a very Jaws effect, I think. Mm-hmm. A lot of the horror comes from we don't know what its limits are. Yeah. Like it or seems like it, it is, can teleport. Really. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, is, is it taking people? Is it eating them? Like, what 
what is its thing? And it's right. it's almost like Slenderman-y in, yeah. in a lot of respects. Like the mystery behind what on earth is its goal and what on earth does it do right. is where a lot of the horror comes it's, from. It's pretty clear to me at this point that it's got something to do with power because, I mean, it was at the power station. That's where it seemed to have come from. And then every time it shows up, like things start to get brighter, things click on, lights get incredibly bright, like that kind of thing keeps happening. So I, I, I'm pretty sure it has something to do with that. But at this point, beyond that, I have very little to go on and I haven't been able to figure out anything else besides that. And Will is apparently theoretically connected to that in some way, having been taken by it or mm-hmm. running from it in some way. He's encountered it more than theoretically anyone else has. Maybe maybe eleven. We don't really know yet. It's it's interesting that uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's it's interesting the way that uh eleven um sets up what's gone on with Will and and the creature. Um just because, you know, up until this point it looks like the creature has gotten him and eaten him. Um, but when she says that he's hiding from it somehow, that's a much more interesting thing. And we start to wonder like, how is that possible? It pretty clearly got him on some level. So what is going on between him and the creature? Um, how is he able to hide it when it clearly took him on some level? It's also, Mm -hmm. I love shows like this where the questions just bring up, uh, where the answers bring up another question Mm. and it sort of makes the mystery seem a lot deeper and a lot more interesting. So out of episode one, I feel like I was sort of under the impression, yeah, he's gone. They're going to find a dead body. The show has a pretty grim tone pretty often, and it's offset by the 80s aesthetic and the 80s soundtrack, which is super banging. Um, I loved closing out this episode with Hazy Shade of Winter, the cover from Bengals, maybe? Um, And uh, where where the heck was I going with that? <laughs> um, what were we talking about? In all I, honesty, I think, I think this episode does a, a really good job of taking everything we saw in the first episode and pushing it one step further. Oh, um, yes. Every character kind of gets a another moment. They all kind of get a little bit more rounded as characters. Um, even even Will, who was gone, we kind of see a little bit more of his home life and what his interactions are with his family. We get a better picture of who he is in relation to them, and you know, we get a better picture of why his family is so desperate to get him back. Um, I think everyone in the show gets pushed just a little bit farther, and that's the that's the the best thing you can possibly do in an episode two. I think. I love the sense of despair that Winona Ryder's character goes through in this episode, because she has to buy that new phone that's from the end of the first episode, and it just ends up happening again in the second episode mm-hmm. after she's already claimed a two weeks advance to mm-hmm. like cover the money that it's costed to print out flyers at the Kinkos and buying the new phone, mm-hmm. probably groceries just to live while not working, I presume. Mm-hmm. Um, and that man, the despair is so well counterbalanced by the strange sense of hope she has at believing that Will is in a light bulb, I guess. In the phone. <laughs> or in somewhere. the phone. Somewhere. Like, yeah, somewhere. Yeah. There's just the fact that she feels confident he's still alive is a... And then we get the payoff knowing that he is still alive in a way from Mm -hmm. uh, Eleven. Mm -hmm. That's really the first time we've gotten confirmation that Will is, big air quotes, out there. And that's better than dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is what we've kind of been led to believe through the first episode and kind of how everything happened with the monster at the very beginning of the episode. Yeah. I really like what's going on with the kids as well. I think that uh, they do a very good job of solidifying um, who these kids are in that Dustin is very hesitant in just about every scene. You know, he's, he's got an awkward charm to him at the same time, but I, I love like that Dustin. Dustin's I, the best. Dustin is really funny. <laughs> I like him a lot, but I also really like Lucas just because I'm getting this clear sense that that kid is just 100% into whatever he's going to do. Like once he's making a decision, it's all the way or nothing. He's like, very buzz year exactly he's he's just he's just 100 at you know he can be he can have his mind changed and and he can be made to see like oh okay that is the logical decision to make here even though that wasn't my first reaction but now we're going full speed ahead to that and i like that a lot from him it, it does a good contrast between him and dustin yeah because he's very committal whereas dustin is a little more like uh, a, he kind of goes with the flow he's a little more hippie-ish you know he's very hesitant and he's very afraid as well of everything yeah the kids are really well balanced out and mm-hmm. i just 
got to give props to the child acting in this show because so there's a lot of so. kids like not not even just our protagonist group but the teens too they're all pretty young and they're well, all i looked it up they're all like in their 20s except for one that's like 19 oh well that, <laughs> they all do look like middle schoolers though like i legit thought they were like 15 well i think that the teens like they are in high school like they the oldest one is 19 i'll look it up again just to be sure but like you're 19 in high, you can be 18 in high school right but like that's the youngest of those kids are you saying in real life or they're in in the show in the show the, the I'm, ta- I'm talking about like nancy, nancy and her friends and, they're in yeah. high school yeah they are in high school the actors are like in their 20s yeah well, i got you okay that's what i was saying. I mean, i'm just saying they're not in, you said middle school and i said well they're in high school oh they're they're in high school Yes. Oh. Yeah. Nancy well, okay. and them are in high school. Oh, okay. The 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 Lucas, Mike, Dustin group. They're in middle school. I was homeschooled, yeah. so I have no idea what part <laughs> corresponds to what age. A lot, so, a lot yeah. of schools they share like, like they might share like K through twelve in one building if it's a small school. Mm. If it's a small town, right. sorry. Which is kind of what we're being led to. Like they're kind of showing us that this is yeah, a small it's, town. It's a small town in Indiana, and that's why you know Lonnie brings up like you know, you should move out to the city. Like they're kind mm-hmm. of way out in the burbs, and you know there's a lot of forest around. The implication is that they're not necessarily in the middle of a of a sprawl, right? Um, so there's probably not an enormous child population out mm-hmm. there. Yeah, and as far as like a, like you said with the child acting and how good it is, I think a lot of that also helps with the fact that these are like real situations almost. Like how like the kids are reacting to mm-hmm. everything that's happening is like that's how kids would react. Like if they find a kid that's acting really weird and they doesn't really know what's going on, they're going to try to teach the kid how to be a kid. Like they're like talking about promises and you know the spit handshake and the swear <laughs> best like scene, best scene of this, <laughs> this this show so far love it <laughs> i think the best scene was the light bulb going out in the intro mm. of the first episode nope spit handshake whole, whole series <laughs> <laughs> oh, background background rubbing it on his shirt better <laughs> <laughs> i mean i love that scene too um yeah like i i found it very compelling how we're building up 11's character because in a lot of ways 11 is kind of not a character more of a vessel she Mm -hmm. definitely has some stuff going on she's definitely got a a history and a background but because of her history and background she kind of comes across as a shell of a person like Mm -hmm. she's got some sort of severe child form of ptsd and that's really a hard to act for a kid or an adult effectively Mm -hmm. but also like the fact that these kids are having to explain to her like hey like this is life. This is how you behave when you have people who don't lock you in weird telekinetic closets that some torture you through solitary confinement. Uh, and it's also interesting, I think, there's sort of some interesting gender dynamics that were at play when it was just them in uh, Mike's room. Because he's showing her like his dinosaur and his Star Wars toys. And she's, on the one hand, you could read it as... She doesn't care because she's never had or cared about toys. You can also read as like, she's like, this is so foreign to me. Like, I'm, you know, I'm a girl, right? And you can feel that (laughs) from Mike, too, because he's like, I, I... he doesn't bring girls to his house. He's no. in middle school. Yeah, he's <laughs> the nerd. He doesn't have, like, girlfriends. Yeah, and I don't think there's necessarily any, like, hefty narrative subtext there. But mm-hmm. I think it's, in a way, it's kind of cute, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of adorable to watch them play this out. And and then how he's showing them the family photos, and she says, like... That's what she's the... actually drawn to, because mm-hmm. she's drawn to, like, the situation. Mm-hmm. She's drawn to, like, the reality of what's going on around her and figuring stuff out. And I, I thought that dynamic was really interesting. Yeah. And I, I do like how he's like trying to show her all the cool things. And like she focuses like on the pictures and says like, ooh, pretty. Like when he's, she's talking about his sister and he's like, oh, yeah. And then just can, keeps trying to show her his cool things where she's kind of like, it's. This is my dinosaur, Rory. <laughs> how is he the dungeon master? <laughs> I I really like um I like the relationship that I'm getting between uh the kid and his sister. Um it's a very it's a very fun relationship between them. I like seeing them um, give Mike each other and crap. Nancy? Yeah, I like seeing them give each other crap at every opportunity. It, it's it's fun to watch. Um, They're definitely a, siblings. Yeah, it's got a very strong feel for that and I like that a lot. Yeah. It definitely 
Yeah, like you said earlier, Ben, like it all feels very real for a situation that is so very not real. Yeah. And that's super compelling and super important for visual storytelling when you have actors. Like you've you've gotta make sure that the script and the performances match up how these characters would actually behave. Mm-hmm. And I think this show really nails that dynamic really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like how they kind of show you things. They don't like necessarily tell you this is what's happening. It's just like it just kind of unfolds in front of you. It I I like being shown things necessarily right. more so than being told. Right. Oh, this is what's happening right now. Right. Instead of um, uh, oh shoot. Uh, instead of Winona Ryder's character coming up and saying, you know, you me and your dad have a lot of problems. You get to see you know uh, the two brothers sitting in his mm-hmm. room listening to the thing, and in that background you hear the argument and them just turning up the music. That works so much better. Yeah, and then when Lonnie's like, oh yeah, you know one kid disappears and now now the other one runs away like it's kind of like showing you that you know there's a lot of hostility between the two of them mm-hmm. without like forcing like saying like and telling you it's just like kind of subtle things like that where it kind of shows like the hostility in that relationship and i, yeah. I really like when they, it's a little bit more subtle as far as that goes mm-hmm. another thing that's that becomes more clear to me as the show goes on is just how incredible the cinematography is. Something I bring up a lot when, uh, like when we when we did Suicide Squad and we talked about like the DCU's sort of tendency to try to make really pretty movies, and that's often the only thing they get right. I've always had a lot of pushback because, to me, the images they're well composed, they're well saturated, they're well lit, but they're not beautiful. To me, the cinematography in this show is beautiful because of how well the cinematography aids the storytelling like there'll be a scene where like the camera like really slowly pushes in on an object that doesn't seem to have a lot of significance but that is the storytellers that is the duffer brothers telling you this is a really important Mm -hmm. and if you do that too if you do that in a way that's that's uh not very subtle you run the risk of it being too obvious and the audience doesn't feel like they're figuring it out for themselves. But if you also do it too subtly, it's like it's not really even happening. And this show just really nails it to a T. And one of the last scenes when, uh, um, oh gosh, what, what? It's not Gabby. What's her best friend's name? Barb. 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 When Barb sort of disappears from her being lost in the monster, there's a there's a this shot of the blood entering the pool and then the monster shows up immediately afterwards and that seems to imply that like the blood is what brought the monster there like the mm-hmm. the monster is hunting barb and that subtext is really interesting and you could sort of feel it before it happened like once the blood went in the pool the first time I watched it there's this moment where I was like okay oh no even though that's on the surface nothing weird (laughs) i feel like something weird's gonna happen with no actual evidence of that being a thing and then the next thing that happens is the monster's there it's just such a very well constructed use of the camera Mm -hmm. definitely yeah like with that i think they do a really good job of building suspense and building dread like without being completely obvious like with music cues and stuff like that like i think they do a really good job of just like kind of like subtly guiding you and building up that suspense in you without you really realizing something's about to happen the musical score is also really subtle like Mm -hmm. it wasn't like there was this crescendo of strings building up there's just like a a and like that was it Mm -hmm. and then barb is gone and then we cut to this rock and roll 80s song while uh nancy is getting her some (laughs) (laughs) and like that's that's it's just so refreshingly composed like everything from the cues to the uh to the acting and the cinematography um and i agree like this episode it's very human there's not a lot of details that are like concrete and learned at this point but you learn so much about the characters and I man, I just I feel so much for Winona Ryder's situation with mm-hmm. every episode, with everything that she learns, and she's definitely the arc I think I gravitate to the most throughout the shows as a, throughout the show as a whole. But this is the episode I was kind of like, all right, I think that this is the character I'm going to want to be following the most. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Any final thoughts? 
I'm enjoying it a lot so far. This is this is where I've ended. Uh, I, I the only reason that I did not continue to watch more of it immediately is that uh, it was pretty late when me and my wife watched those first two episodes, and we had to go to work the next day, and we hadn't had an opportunity to sit down and watch more of them since. So I'm excited to get to see more of it when I can. Well, she is more than welcome to come over and watch episodes three through four with us the next time we can get together and do this. Definitely. All right. Any other final thoughts, Ben? Uh, I just like where they kind of leave everything off. Like they kind of wrap some stuff up every episode and then open new doors. And I just really like seeing like the new doors open up. And like when I watched it the first time, it was just like, okay, where is this going to take me now? And that I like how they do that. And like that just gives you more desire to keep watching. Yeah. Every episode does a really good job of ending on like a good cliffhanger. That doesn't feel like a cliffhanger. Exactly. It's just a point of heightened tension that makes you interested in learning more. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just balanced really well. I just remembered the first scene that opens up the next episode (laughs) and I really want to watch it right now. (laughs) Oh man. Oh, but alas, all good things must come to an end. All right, Mm -hmm. guys. Uh, Thanks for watching stranger things with me for my fifth watch through i don't know what what? what'd you say all right well all right bye guys (laughs) all right well this has been fun and uh we're opinionated are we i don't know we weren't very opinionated i don't think i'm really like we're all very it's kind of hard to be as opinionated as we often are when we all agree how good something is steve (laughs) rules (laughs) oh (laughs) thank (laughs) god